I've been asked to speak specifically on, this sounds like a lot of fun, the relationship between political philosophy, principles, and political action. Doesn't that sound exciting? Or basically, I guess, how to put the ideas of freedom and individual rights, in this case as defined by Ayn Rand, into practice. I was just talking with David, and he said one of the problems with getting together a club like uh, the Objectivist Club here is that it's perceived as a, an overly, quote, intellectual club, and, and it's hard to bring the ideas of philosophy down to basically the street level where the average person can understand um, what your philosophy is all about. I think in this context, I've been at doing that very thing for about 15 years, as Rick mentioned. And I'm going to basically try and discuss a bit about my experiences in this regard, how I came to discover Ayn Rand, how I came to uh, be a founding member of the Freedom Party of Ontario, and what we are doing, basically, to try and implement this philosophy, and how we, we relate in contrast to the advice given by Ayn Rand and other free market, um, free minds type of thinkers. I'm going to assume, because of, I really want to get a discussion going, I don't want to talk for, for an hour at, at length, I'll probably speak for about half an hour, 40 minutes or so. Um, but I'm going to assume basically that most people in this room are somewhat familiar with Ayn Rand or objectivism or the basic um, ideas that are promoted by the whole objectivist movement. I'm going to use Ayn Rand's focal point of my discussion I'm going to refer to quotes by her, to advice given by her, criticisms of her, things of that nature. Um, basically open the door to future discussion and to answer a lot of your concerns and questions um, when I wind up. I don't proclaim to be uh, an expert on objectivism or on Ayn Rand, or, nor do I suggest I'm operating with uh, her approval or the approval of uh, any objectivist official uh, movement. I'm basically a fan, really, in, in the sense that uh, I do take objectivism seriously. I think it's the first scientific approach to philosophy that I've ever encountered. And I think, um, with that in mind, um, you know, I have a very strong kinship with the whole philosophy of objectivism and Ayn Rand. Um, certainly, personally, when I first read Ayn Rand, well, literally changed my life. I was a, a supervisor of uh, accounting for a large um, Southwestern Ontario Trust Company. I was supervisor of Southwestern Ontario Region for a company called Canada Permanent Trust, which is now part of Canada Trust. In late 1979, or around 1979, I was first introduced to Ayn Rand under the most peculiar circumstances. Up until that point in time, I considered myself basically apolitical. I've gotten to the point where I voted liberal, I voted conservative, I voted NDP, believe it or not. Never voted for a winner. So that, that means I've never been represented in this democratic system of ours. And after a while, I started realizing the whole political system as I saw it anyway at that time. It was totally futile, useless. At that point, I even gave up voting. I didn't even show up at, at, at the election booth on time for voting. So I considered myself a political. That's how I saw myself. And I certainly was no friend of big government. Being in the trust company industry, I saw that basically everything that the government was doing was hurting my business, hurting the economy, hurting the people who saw coming in the door. And at the root of everything I saw, and I'm talking right now, uh, maybe a lot of you don't know or remember, but 
turn of the 70s, 80s, we were looking at 20% interest rates. Can you imagine what that would do to the real estate industry and the mortgage industry, both of which I was involved with? So what had happened at the time, in 1979, I got sort of uh, sucked into running for politics. A friend of mine had talked me into running for a party I'd never heard of until the night I signed up to run for it. And that name of that party was the Libertarian Party. And I really did it as a favor to this friend, more so to, because he had invested some money in a campaign and someone backed out on him and he needed to put a name on the ballot. And he said, do I mind putting my name on the ballot? And I said, okay, if I don't have to do anything, I'll put my name on the ballot. Leave me alone. I get down to the registration office not five minutes before the deadline to register. Get signed up, and I figure, okay, that's that. My name's going to appear on the ballot. I'll get a few parole votes, and that's the end of my commitment. And I've paid, paid off a friend, a debt to a friend. Well, the next thing I know, phone starts ringing off the hook. I didn't know that when you registered as a candidate to run in an election, the media would be given your home number, and if they're going to phone you up, and they're expecting you to show up at all candidates. Now, I've got to explain my perspective here. At the time, I did not know what left-wing was. I did not know what right-wing was. I didn't know what a conservative was. I didn't know what a liberal was. I had no idea what, what new Democrat was wrong with the old ones, you know? <laughs> These are the kind of questions that I was thinking. Totally, totally, absolutely naive. And so this friend says, don't worry. You have no idea how stupid politicians are. He says, here, read this book. Read these three chapters. And you'll be able to help the faith of me. Well, the book he handed me was Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, by this person named Heinrich. I had never heard of Tsar, or never heard this name before. So I opened this book up, and the chapters he showed me were somewhere in the center. I forget what the issues of the time were. I think one of them was um, uh, government monopolies, and I mean, issues that we don't even think about today politically, but they were the big issues. I read these chapters on those issues, and that's all I read. And I'm talking about three essays out of that book. Would that be uh, 12 pages, 15 pages, maybe? Well, out of that, those three essays, I got enough information that I could go into an old canvas And I figured it was going to be well. I was shocked. And after my first debate, I got up the next morning, and there I was in front of the newspaper. It said, Libertarian candidate rates high with students. <laughs> and I'm going, well, that's interesting. And the funny thing was, a lot of the questions I was asked at the time were questions I couldn't answer. And so the way I answered them, I said, I'm sorry, I don't know. But I'll find out. And people seem to like that. They don't want to hear just some made-up answer to cover every issue that they can think of. Uh, somebody just coming out and saying, I don't know, was, was a revelation to most of the people that I ran into. I found out, too, by taking the ideas from Rand, I went to a business lunch and gave a speech. I got a standing ovation. Never talked about any of these ideas. So after my first experience in that election, I realized, hey, there's something to these ideas. I started taking them very seriously. They made a lot of sense to me. I mean, I probably was 90% of the way there in the sense of being ready to accept these ideas. No one had ever concretized these ideas so well for me as had Ayn Rand. And as it happened, too, at this time in my uh, career with the trust company, I had, a lot of, I, had, I had a lot of spare time. Being a supervisor, I got to uh, use a lot of my cold office time for personal things. And my company was well aware of it, knew about it, and in fact sort of supported me in a, in a 
in a, in a funny sort of way. So it wouldn't be uh, unusual to find me sitting in my office 10 o'clock in the morning, sitting on hold, waiting for the open line show, so I could argue with Wayne McLean on CMPL <laughs> Radio 98. And it was by calling up at least once or twice a week on open line shows that I got a little bit of experience in taking these ideas and confronting other people with them, seeing how they react. I was going to test Rand. I was going to say, well, listen, she says people react like this, so I'll see if they do. And you know what? I've never run into an exception yet. And the other thing I did, I recorded what we call the I listened back to them and I'm amazed at what we can hear and reveal in terms of hearing these conflicts head on. And so what, what I want to do now is sort of get into some of the, uh, the ideas of brand in terms of uh, the key ones that I want to focus on today. I'm certainly not going to take an all-encompassing view of, of, of objectivism that wouldn't be possible in, in this uh, forum. But I want to take some of those key ideas of brand discuss them briefly and then talk about how we actually got into marketing these ideas. Marketing an idea, a philosophy, um, is very different from what you might expect it to be. Um, just before I take a complete digression, I want to talk about how Freedom Party got started itself as a political party. This was actually a separate event. It wasn't that my um, belief in Rand led to my starting a political party. What actually happened it was just, let's call it, uh, let's call it fake. Okay? <laughs> but what actually happened was, I was handed, along with another group of people here in London, a, re a, a registration of an official party in Toronto that operated under another name. And the people in that party were generally uh, disaffected libertarians, objectivists, and, and neoconservatives, I guess you might call the group that was in that. They ran themselves ragged trying to establish a political party, trying to get a quote, the big massive freedom movement going from coast to coast. And rather than give up their official registration, which is worth a lot of money, they handed it to us. We were a group here in London that was politically active, but on our own. You know, I, I had been involved in a tax protest. Um, I did start a local, local chapter of that particular party here in town. And uh, just on the basis of a minimal bit of act action and activity, I was astounded at the amount of response in return we were getting from it. And the folks in Toronto saw this and they said, well listen, we've got this officially registered party that you want. And I said, yeah, it's the tax credits. That's great. Somebody gives us 200 bucks, they get 150 bucks on their tax return. That's worth something. And even if I don't want to enter the political arena in the traditional sense, I can certainly use an organization like that. Just having that official status. So that's really what happened in terms of how Freedom Party was born. We took over the registration, we sent a letter to the Elections Commission, said we want to call this party Freedom Party. Uh, it was changed to that name January 1, 1984. And for the next uh, two or three years, we spent our time basically developing the product. Like our job, I see Freedom Party and organizations like this as retailers of the product. We're looking at this in the marketing sense. And for us, the product is individual. And we had to sit down and decide how does one market individual freedom because you can't put it down on the shelf and sell it. You can't see it. 
It's an idea. It's an abstract. How do you sell something like that? So what we did, we went through a, a list of advice. I went through all of Ayn Rand's literature that I had read time and time again. I'll tell you, when I discovered Rand, this is still one of my first books um, that I picked up by her, The Virtue of Selfishness. I still got to sit in the office. This thing is just marked up to that underlying all over the place, you know, like certain concepts really struck me and I could use them. It's really funny, the first day that all the dominoes started to fall was when I read the definition behind Rand of what government was and what made it different from any other institution in our society. And the funny thing was, I knew this before. It's implicit in the nature of government. But it never stuck out to me the significance of it. When Ayn Rand said that government, the thing that makes it different from any other institution is that it has a, mon a monopoly on the legalized use of force. Now, basically everybody knows this. Everybody accepts that. But I don't think a lot of people see the consequences of that if that monopoly on force is used in an improper way. To have a set of standards firmly in place to use this dangerous weapon that's in our society, this monopoly on the use of force, to discipline, to a set of principles, so that it does not become a threatener to the citizens it's supposed to protect, which is exactly the opposite trend of what's happening in this country today. So what we, what I did was we went through a whole bunch of people's literature, including Ayn Rand, but in this, this time I did not read Ayn Rand for the purposes of getting philosophic information. I wanted advice. I went through every page and I ignored everything to do with her arguments for philosophy, this or that. I wanted to see her do's and don'ts. And we isolated those out from a lot of her writing. We picked a lot of things. We picked other people, people who had been in, uh, in power in government, either in the United States or here. For example, William Simon at that time had written a wonderful book Truth. And having been a non-elected official at the top of the U.S. government, he can say things that an elected official cannot say. And he gave a, a tremendous amount of advice that was very valuable in terms of uh, what people have to do if they really want to change the philosophy of their country. So basically, if we're going to talk about applying principles to practice, I think we have to start with a couple of definitions. Um, and how principles work in practice, and then get right to the advice that I'm going to give. I'm going to use this principle, this definition of principle by Rand. A principle is a fundamental, primary, or general truth on which all other truths depend. Thus, a principle is an abstraction which subsumes a great number of concretes. It is only by means of principles that one can set one's long-range goals and evaluate the concrete alternatives of any given moment. It is only principles that enable a man to plan his future and to achieve. Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion or debate about that point as yet. We're going to just work on the definition of anything. And then, I think the main thing to understand about principles and the thing that I talk about a lot you can get into a lot of arguments with a lot of people saying, well, you know, the enemy can They got principles, look what they're doing. And I argue with people like that, I say, no, they don't. They're the dog. Principles are discovered, not invented. Dogmas are invented. And that's basically the difference, is that the principle is a true principle. It's got to relate to reality. If it doesn't relate to reality, 
we shouldn't even be calling it a principle. That it's not a real principle in the sense of you follow this sequence of events or do this uh, act and you have this consequence. So definitely, we're talking about principles. We have to realize that they're discovered, that they exist, they are real. And that's where a lot of difficulty comes in for a lot of people. Whereas principles are discovered, dogmas are basically based on uh, faith, no rational justification, or against rational evidence. A dogma is a matter of blind faith. Uh, perfect example of a dogma. From each according to his ability, to each according to his need. That's basically a socialist communist principle. And yet if you were to examine that principle and take it apart for what it actually meant, it have no basis can't be a principle, it's just a belief. A belief based on some out-of-context idea. True principles result in understanding. You know, as an example, if you look in advance of science where principles provide discipline and a fundamental base of knowledge versus what we see going on in the humanities where there's really not that much progress in the sense of building on previous knowledge. Um, in the philosophic sense, where a lack of principles eliminates all discipline and erodes the base of knowledge. You know, what's funny about principles, uh, people can see principles in a certain concrete way. If I have a ball in my hand, and I were to drop it, or I, actually before I were to drop it, I, I asked the people in this room, what do you expect this ball to do? I think everyone would know the ball is off the floor. Well, if I pick up the ball, and us again, I asked that same question. I'm pretty sure everyone would answer the ball would fall to the floor. We could repeat this exercise many times, and the same thing would happen. In politics, it's not the same way. The principles aren't that visible. I could have a political principle in my hand here, and the first time it could drop to the floor, and people could see it drop to the floor, and you pick it up, and you say, Well, if I'm going to drop it again, what do you think it's going to do? More than 50% of the people will tell you it will fall because they don't understand the principle. They may have seen the concrete at one point in time, but they don't understand the principle. So that fundamentally is a, is a major problem with principles. So I guess one question to answer is, why do we need principles? Why do we need them? You know, freedom itself is, is based on a set of principles, and freedom is an abstract idea. And because it's an idea, it's beyond the understanding of a lot of people. You talk to most people about abstractions and philosophy in general, they'll tell you, well, you know, they're discarded, they're denigrated, they're put down. You know, I have this, my own self-made principle, I call it the losing philosophy principle. Have you ever noticed, especially in the media and the radio and the public, that whenever anybody uses the word philosophy, it's, really, it's always associated with losing. You know that Olympic swimmer who just about made it and lost that gold medal? Well, he was philosophical about it. <laughs> you know, the guy was in a car accident, lost his two arms. He's philosophical about it. Still happens now. You don't hear about the winner, the guy at the top of the big corporation, or the, the guy who won the race, or did anything like that. Nobody says they were philosophical about how they achieved their goals. It wouldn't occur to anybody. Although they were pragmatic, they did the job. So to most people, you see, Abstractions, in that sense, are very lost to people. They don't see how it applies to the real world. In the world of politics, especially, people are hopelessly concrete ground. 
can only see the symptoms and devote their gut reaction to the symptoms, or rather, against the symptoms. You know, in politics, people never vote for things, they vote against things. That was one of the principles of politics that I had to learn before I got into this. Had I not learned that people vote against things and not for things, I wouldn't have lasted 13 years doing this. I would have lost my first and second election and given up. Not realizing that people, it wasn't that people weren't voting for me or against me, they were voting against someone else. I used to vote all candidates in space. People would love my speech and they'd come up to me and Mr. Metzke, you were great up there. It was excellent, but I'm going to conservative. And when I asked them why they voted conservative, well, they pointed to liberal or MVP. And that was what their whole idea of politics was all about. Is it any wonder that we're at the state of breath today? Then there are a group of people, I guess you can call them pragmatists, who tend to, to discard principles and philosophies being unnecessary, irrelevant, not often counterproductive obstacles that stand in the way of progress. Now really what they mean by progress is what they want. They personally think they want. So that's how a lot of people judge politics. You know, you're going to give me something free and you're offering me that as a politician, I may go for you on that basis. I'm not principled and I don't understand how politics works and I haven't figured out yet that every dollar they give me they're taking out of my pocket in the first place. But most people have it. It's almost hard to believe that there would be more than 2% of people in this country who don't understand that government gets its money from the people being taxed. But you know, surveys constantly reveal that over 50% of the people don't understand that. Governments have their own money. <laughs> So right there you have a major obstacle to deal with. How can I relate this to a large group of people? If you saw the difficulty expressed by people on how to vote in the recent referendum, you can see how this philosophical vacuum is just so wide, so present. Um, to people without a foundation in philosophy, making a choice on a philosophic issue is virtually impossible. And that's really what that last referendum was all about. Even though it was a long, convoluted, a multi-page document that they were asking us to vote on. Um, you know, I just read recently in the paper, someone said, well, the reason we all voted no was because, well, we didn't include data rights in, in Charlottetown Court. And another group said, well, we voted no because we didn't include women's rights. And you can just see how so many groups and interests don't understand the fundamental nature. And that, you know, fundamentally, we're getting down the whole issue of group rights versus so, as Ayn Rand reminds us, you know, those who are not interested in philosophy need it most urgently. They are most helpless in its power. And that is absolutely true. If you understand philosophy, you can walk through this without any. I'll tell you, one thing I feel very confident about now is I can go up against Brian Mulroney or Bob Ray, it wouldn't bother me at all. I feel totally confident that you wouldn't stand a chance up against me in terms of debating philosophical issues. The interesting thing about philosophy, and again here I refer to Rand, is that as a human being, quote, you have no choice about the fact that you need a philosophy. Your only choice is whether you define your philosophy by a conscious, rational, disciplined process of thought, or let your subconscious accumulate a junk heap of unwarranted conclusion, false generalizations, undefined contradictions. And this is where you get in. This is the thing I've had to deal with a lot in politics. 
know, start as a political party, somebody might like a particular find out about the party and then they do something about another issue that's perfectly to us philosophically consistent with the other one, but to them, holy cow, no way. So you have this problem of trying to attract a homogenous group of people who have a common philosophy in general. The people are constantly asking what they can do to fight the trends that are happening today. And as Rand says, they're seeking some form of action, wrecking their whole folks in blind alleys, particularly at election time. Those who do not realize that the battle is ideological had better give up because they have no chance. So basically, that's principles and philosophies and why we need them. But there's a working of principles that Rand spelled out in a three-point uh, statement, I guess you might call it. That I, it, fascinated, it fascinated me at one point, and I, it's one of these things that I had to test out and put into practice to see if it really worked. And I have yet again to find an exception to this rule. And these are the working principles and the relationship of principles to goals. And if those of you who've read Rand might be familiar with them. There's three of them. Number one, in any conflict between two people or groups, hold the same basic principles. Yes, believe it or not, you can hold the same basic principles and still have conflicts. But in any such conflicts, the more consistent one can win. Now I learned this with the Libertarian Party. When I, excuse me, when I ran with the Libertarian Party, one thing I discovered shortly after I ran for the first time was that they weren't very consistent in principle. Um, it's funny because if uh, if you look at the Libertarian Party Statement of Principles, they've pretty much literally taken Ayn Rand's Statement of Principles as it relates to freedom, just as we have. So in, a, in the written sense, the same principles are in place. But if you look, at to see what, look to see what the two parties are doing in practice, you'll find many examples in the Libertarian Party that are very inconsistent, both, both from a philosophical point and from an operational point. And when I got started in politics early enough, I was invited to be among the libertarians, but I could not associate myself with a group that was not willing to accept such a divergence in terms of philosophic basis. Like I'm completely open when it comes to marketing yourself and how you want to promote an idea as long as you do not contradict a certain basic set of principles. But in any case, it seems that things have proven me out properly, or it's come out right in the long term. Libertarian Party is falling apart from within. There's all kinds of factions. It's, it's got its own left and right wing group. Um, and basically, they're having a lot of trouble keeping the, the whole thing together and looking credible in the public eye. Meanwhile, we've been very consistent from day one, always reiterating the same message, the same philosophy, the same platform. The second point Rand brings up is in any collaboration between two groups or people who hold different basic it is the more evil or a rational one to win. Now, just being aware of that has kept me out of a lot of trouble. It's very easy to get aligned with other, quote, ad hoc, um, single issue groups who may share a particular issue or a particular goal in, in the sense of the ultimate political policy with us, that when we examine them on the basis of the principle and why they're doing it, it could be 
be a very wide difference there. And if we're not aware of that difference, I'm not saying we wouldn't work with such people, but if we weren't aware of that distance, we wouldn't know how to position ourselves against such groups. And that can be very damaging to us. If I work with a group, uh, for example, one, one perfect example is APAC, Associates for Preservation of English in Canada. Now, they, like Freedom Party, are opposed to fundamental policy such as it is official bilingualism. But their reasons aren't necessarily the principal reasons that we're talking about here tonight in terms of objectivism. But nevertheless, I can still work with them. Campaign together, um, you know, work on a specific goal at a specific point and have no conflicts or problems between us. But we could never work together as a total unified group on other issues because right then there'd be all kinds of disagreements among the members as there are within the and as there are within any groups that are formed around a single issue. You're going to find people in that group that all agree about the one issue and they get together at a social gathering and you find out half of them are communists and are capitalists and they can't stand each other at the end of the day. <laughs> but anyway, the point about the collaboration of different basic principles, what Rand was trying to get at was that, and it's kind of obvious if you think about it, the rational side of an argument has nothing to gain from an irrational side. The only winner in that collaboration is the irrational side. As Rand puts it, she says, the rational, or the good, since that's the frame and definition we're talking from, has nothing to gain from the irrational, the evil, except a share of its failures and crimes. The irrational has everything to gain from the rational, a share of its achievements and value. And then the third point she brought out was, when opposite basic principles are clearly and openly defined, it works to the advantage of the rational side. When they are not clearly defined, but hidden or evaded, it works to the advantage of the irrational side. The rational side requires that its goals be understood. It has nothing to hide since reality is its ally. The irrational side has to deceive, to confuse, to evade, to hide its goals. And you know, I think of all the things that we have to concentrate on in our party when we do get involved in a campaign, this is probably one of the biggest points. And it comes down to Rand's advice, you know, she said, you can't fight an idea except with a better idea. The battle consists not in opposing, but in exposing. I don't have to waste my time battling against, quote, socialism or Bob Ray or anything like that. I don't have to do that. That's not my job. If that's what I'm going to set myself up to do, I'm going to lose. Plain and simple. If I want to win, what I've got to do is play the law of identity. Point out to people what Bob Ray is and what he represents. I don't have to say anything bad about him. except to say what he's saying about himself. From my philosophic perspective, and you wouldn't believe how that works. It works incredibly. The thing is, you have to be able to do it. You don't go around denouncing, but disproving. You do not evade, but you proclaim a full, quote, radical alternative, as Ayn Rand always said. And this is something we've done from the beginning. With every issue we've gotten into, we've always provided an alternative, both philosophically and in a concrete sense. So that leads me down to the actual basic things of what people can do, and then we'll go right into discussion from there. In 1972, many of you might be familiar with the copy of the Ayn Rand letter, um, and it was called, What Can One Do? I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. 
But in that essay, and I refer to it many times, he talks about the things that you should do and a few things that you shouldn't do. And she begins by obviously stating that the whole, what you're going to be trying to do is getting involved in intellectual philosophical battle. That is the nature of the problem. And that's what has to be addressed. And when you're in an intellectual battle, it is not necessary to convert everybody. You don't have to go around converting the world that your way is right and what they're doing. As Rand said, history is made by minorities. Or more precisely, history is made by intellectual movements which are created by minorities. Now, this is absolutely the truth. This is the first principle I've learned, and I call it the minority principle. When I got involved in politics, I heard about all these lobby groups. A lot of them are here on campus. Status of Women Action just name there's a million of them, okay? I used to think these groups, you know, all the publicity they got in the paper, they must be huge. I mean, million members and figures of that nature. But when I got right down to the root of it and I started investigating a lot of these big groups, you know, that at least in my mind they were big groups, I find out that most of them consist of three to six people. And if you've got 12 people in the group, you've got three organizations. And this is true of every single group that I know of, and that includes big political parties, it includes the National Citizens Coalition, it includes all the environmental groups, it includes Freedom Party, the Libertarian Party, all the small parties. You want to put all those people in one room, they'll all fit in this room. Those are the people that make things happen. And it's hard for a lot of people to understand that, but it's true. And people think, oh, it's hard to get into this clique. It's really hard to get in there and be part of that small group. It's the easiest thing in the world. All you've got to do is say, I'm going to do it. Walk in, you remember. That's what Rand was saying. You know, if you want to be belong to one of these minorities, and these are the people that set the trend for the majorities. Everything you hear about is minority rule. There's no majority rule in this country, even though we, we practice it. Everything is run by minorities. And as Rand says, who belongs to these minorities? Anyone who's able and will. That's all it takes. I know a few of you here in the room, and you got involved in the Freedom Party on your own. You already know that you've set a trend. You've set, uh, the, the, the pace and the whole tone of an election. But as Rand said, you know, Rand always sort of advised against political movements, seeing with politics at the end of the chain, which is very true. And that all organizational activity has to be preceded by an educational movement. But that doesn't mean it can't be organized and it can't follow a lot of the same trends. So in that sense, what we've done at Freedom Party to educate is we publish like crazy. We publish all kinds of things. Um, pamphlets, which this is only a sample of. By the way, a lot of you have a copy of this. If you do send in the post-paid card inside, you'll be on our mailing list for a while and get some of these newsletters, which include among them, and we publish them basically every other month, um, each one. Freedom Flyer, which is our uh, just a thing on our activities at Freedom Party. We publish a magazine called Consent every other month, which is just like the objectivist newsletter, the, a lot of people think this is Ayn Rand stuff and they read it. But it's all essay oriented and deals with all sorts of subjects. A lot of specialty publications, for example, Censorship Alert, how we state our case against censorship. We made a, a very philosophic case against it and then we pulled the rest of this magazine up with a million examples of censorship around the world and what it does to people and how it's handled by governments. And for example, this is the piece we did on the recent uh, referendum. We reprinted the whole Charlottetown Accord in there, including the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. 
our own submission to the federal government on the process for amending the Constitution and our own analysis of it, all very philosophically based. And um, this stuff's effective when you do it that way. So as Rand said, some of the things you can do is, she says, speak on any scale, large groups, small groups, write letters to the editor. Above all, do not keep silent when you know that your own ideas and your own values are being attacked right in front of you. I mean, you don't have to get up and give a speech. You don't have to say, I disagree. Um, and of course, she really cautioned against people at that time when she wrote this, getting involved in political movements. She said, above all, quote, do not join the wrong ideological groups or movements in order to, quote, do something. By ideological in this context, I mean groups or movements proclaiming some vaguely generalized, undefined, and usually contradictory political goals. And that's true. If you do join a group like that, and we've seen a lot of them, uh, they get to a real height of glory, at least in their own eyes, very quickly, and then fade away. The thing is, usually when a person joins a group like that, they don't get the satisfaction out of it that they originally expected to get. What Rand actually recommended was that people should properly join ad hoc committees, like single-issue um, organizations or groups that are there just to fight a single issue. Now, I took all this advice very much to heart. When we first did our first campaign, even though Freedom Party backed it, we did it. We didn't do it under the name Freedom Party. We formed an ad hoc group. We called it the No Tax and Pan Am Committee. We did that in 1984-85. And our goal was to prevent the city of London from spending $110 million tax dollars on hosting a two-week 1991 Pan Am Games here in the city. And we made it very clear from the beginning that we weren't against the games or anything like that, that what we were against was tax funding of the games. Out of that one campaign, ran five months, we were successful. Think about that. There's about three or four of us as key people involved. We lobbied federal, provincial, and municipal governments. And we stopped the spending of 110 million tax dollars in our first campaign. And our success just about blew us away. We weren't sure what to do with it because we didn't expect it. I mean, theoretically, I mean, in theory, it's supposed to work, but holy oh, crap, actually works in practice. And that's when I started realizing that we really had And of course, writing is a, is a major thing that Rand always says. She also said that, in a way, it's too late for a movement of people who hold conventional mixture of contradictory philosophic notions, but at the same time, it's too early for a movement of people dedicated to a philosophy of reason. Now, the way I express that is a little differently. You know, when I got involved in politics, the problem with being a political party is the first expectation people have of you is that you've got to get elected. And if you're not elected, that's the only standard of your success. Well, I knew that if I was going to start a party based on these ideas, I wasn't going to be elected for quite a while. If I was going to get elected on these ideas, the only way I was going to do it was by lying to the public. Because if I wanted to get elected, and I only ran in this to get elected, I could have been a conservative, liberal, or new Democrat and just got up and promised people all kinds of things that they wanted to hear. But that's not what I was willing to do. So I had to set up my own standard. I had to say, well, how am I going to measure my success? And I felt that the only way to do it was to set short-term goals with short-term objectives, reach those objectives, and build on that. And we did very short-term things. We had a number of of issues we got, in, uh, got involved with that we were very successful at. We were shocked that we could be 
needed uh, two union ratifications. One was coast to coast for the Eaton's company. We wrote their literature for them. Believe it or not, there were actually employees at Eaton's in 1984 who saw them picketing outside Eaton's and we thought they were union picketers and we got went up to talk to them and they were employees who didn't want to be a member of the union and the union was trying to ratify Eaton's. They weren't allowed by law to seek any help from the employer. They had run short of and spent all their funds that they had from employees and they weren't allowed to get any help from anyone else. So we offered to printed some literature for them free and we did it totally in a nonpartisan way. It was just their literature. Uh, had their name on it, and you can imagine how pleased we were to see our literature reproduced in a full-page article on their campaign in the pages of the Toronto Sun. And especially when it was associated with a successful campaign. Similarly, right here on campus, we stopped the union ratification of staff services. That was in 1987. Simply because two people here on campus who happened to be members of our party asked us for help. Gave the same piece of literature. One piece of literature did this, folks. A little pamphlet, threefold over. Get it in there in time, you can stop them dead in their tracks with a single idea. And it works. And that's the scary part. It really works, and people just don't want to believe it because they think it takes such a leap of faith. So at this point, I'm getting a whole rambling in terms of uh, all the kinds of issues and things that we actually did, but I thought maybe we might have some concerns on your minds in terms of some questions or issues that you might like to bring up. I know Rick, you had a few things that you mentioned to me earlier. I don't know if I covered them yet or not. But um, does anyone have any? Yes? Some people think that say you have sort of a luxury Well, everyone would say that, yes. Yeah, I think so. Well, I was wondering if there's any doubt in your mind that if you actually could get into power, like if you could stick with these principles and handle this from the beginning politics. No doubt, whatever. You know, people tend to think that if you get into politics, you've got to compromise the principles. No, you don't. you got to do a lot of compromising. Not the principles. Never. And it's not a matter of if I got into parliament, if I were in the legislature voting on a particular bill, that I would compromise my principles and vote on, on a full favor of the bill that I was against. But I might be outvoted and therefore not achieve the goal that I had intended. And because I was part of that vote, I'm included in the, well, you didn't do what you said you were going to do when you got into power. And a lot of politicians unfairly get blamed for a lot of that today. Same thing's being said of Bob Ray. You know, a lot of people think that well, he's gotten too pragmatic since he's gotten into power away from his post-socialist principles. I don't think so. I think he stuck to his principles. And the problem is his principles don't work, and so that when things screw up, people think, well, it was another problem, you know? So that's really not a problem, and I don't see it as a problem. As long as you, you know, the principles are there to set your long-term goal. And it may be in politics that sometimes you're faced with the lesser of two evil choices. Like I've got to pick between this and this. And I might not like either choice. But that doesn't mean you're compromising any principle. Rand went into detail about that in great, in great deal. And uh, I'm not sure which essay it was in, but it makes fascinating reading in terms of, uh, you know, you can't be too literal in the sense of applying principles 
in sort of in the sense of perceiving the application of principles, if you know what I mean. You can't always tell what's going on behind the scenes type of thing. But no, I don't have a problem with principles at all in electrical or electrical. And I've certainly been able to use them in all candidates' debates. And uh, I'll tell you, if I abandon my principles, I'd help. What a real quiet, quiet group tonight. Well, there's, um, I was, was listening to uh, Neil Eric a few weeks ago, and they were, they were discussing the, uh, the Perot phenomenon, the fact that you got 17% of the popular Republican. Mm -hmm. They were they were comparing him to Libertarian candidate John Anderson, who in 1980 ran about 10%, which amounts to you know several million. Uh, so that was supposedly a, a big phenomenon. You figure if you had a, you know, the equivalent of Canada, say you had uh, 800,000 people or, or eventual federal state party, but, that would be big. but the Libertarian Party in the United States has basically fallen apart. John Anderson was an independent on the Libertarian. Oh, right. He got about 6% of the U.S. Kenneth Rowe was 19%. Yeah, anywhere between 17 and 20 is where I saw Were you asking a question related to that? Um, okay, I, I guess I was I misunderstood the program. I thought it was Well, the Libertarians had had a candidate. They had a candidate this past election. I don't know how many votes he got. Uh, but uh, in one state, uh, some years ago, a libertarian uh, called a respectable, like it's Alaska, a libertarian called a respectable number of votes. Oh, yeah, in Alaska they tend to do well. I think they can have someone elected at my point. Well, I was just wondering if uh, the, the aspirations for the Freedom Party would be uh, similar in terms of you know, election votes. Oh, definitely. Um, that sort. And I mean, do you see that as, as a success? I mean, do you see the Libertarian Party in the U.S. doing any Well, I, no, I can't look at the Libertarian Party as a whole because I know enough about the party to know that a Libertarian group in, in Los Angeles is totally different from a Libertarian group in New York City. So what I would suggest in that sense, I'm not going to put everyone under the same umbrella, but I would say certain groups within the Libertarian Party just like certain groups of any movement, I'm sure the objectivist movement too, or aren't really doing much in terms of changing their intellectual, philosophical environment. And others are doing a great deal. Um, and I don't think it's a monopoly that libertarians or objectivists or anyone like that like that has. I mean, this is, we're talking about a flux of ideas, all kinds of ideas from all kinds of spectrums. And all kinds of groups are involved. And that's why it's very important for people to get involved. It only takes a handful of people to do anything. And that's why it's so important to realize that minorities do everything. And then, you know, I think people get a little bit um, put off by the fact that maybe if they start a movement or get involved in something, that they generally are going to be on the roll for the most part. And yet that's nothing, nothing you get excited about because that's the exact process that everyone else wants. It's just that if you let it intimidate you, it's going to hold you back. And what we have done over the years, I've been at this now 15 years. I, got, I sort of stepped in very slowly. At first, it was a part-time thing. And we started having regular meetings and then regular newsletters. And the next thing I know, we had a regular cash flow generated from our activities and our newsletters and contributions. And uh, as time went on, it's just been growing, growing, growing. 
And what will generally happen with any political movement is after a certain period of time, the public in general suddenly realizes you're there. And they say, oh, that works. Right? And in that sense. And I wouldn't sell that to them in that way, like in terms of the taxes. Those are the taxes I was talking about. But certainly, when you talk about freedom, yes, everybody recognizes their own freedom when it's, when it's threatened. And in fact, that's what we're doing. Quite often, people come into the party and they're attracted by a single issue. Okay, somebody comes in and uh, they're mad about censorship. They don't like how what we might be saying about taxes. Well, what I deal with them, I just talk to them about what they want to talk about. We'll talk about censorship. And then I'll agree with them because we have a point of agreement. And then I'll tell them why I agree with them. I agree with you because I believe in this principle. And you know that's the and then that's, once you get them accepting the principle, reiterating the principle, you'd be surprised the mind starts opening up to seeing that principle and other issues that we didn't accept at that time. But I can't expect that kind of reaction right away. I have to give it time. And that's one of the problems with politics. Politics is a short-term event, okay? The average politician isn't thinking eight, 12 years ahead. He's thinking three, four years ahead, the next time he gets elected. And that's the whole time span of thinking, and that's how the whole, the whole system is set up. We really have to reevaluate our whole political system, not just in terms of philosophy and issues, but even the, the mechanics of it, to get, us, to get a society, that, a political system that represents an individual more rather than representing group rights. And this is something that really came out strongly in the last referendum. And there's a perfect example. If I were to say anything good about that referendum, is it, it was a, for a change we're voting on an idea instead of our personality. And that was a very different phenomenon. Um, it might not have been the idea I would have picked to have to vote on, but it was the first time people were forced to think. And we had so many people calling us up for answers because nobody had never occurred to think about these issues before. People calling me up, well, what do they mean by it? Let's go back on to be protected from. And then you've got to decipher the whole language for it. Well, Quebec doesn't need protection from anything. And protection from collective rights is what you're trying to enshrine in the Constitution to protect themselves from. <laughs> and so you can get, you get, you get into these kinds of debates with people, but that's what brings them in the door, is looking for an answer. They're at that stage. That's when you can start talking to them. You can't talk to people who aren't looking for an answer. We've got to remind them about things already. You don't have to waste your time with them. See, my job as an organization, and your job and your organization, shouldn't be so much an issue. I'm talking about your organization, not your activities, not your community activities, but your organization. You shouldn't be wasting your time looking to convert people and bring them into the fold. Because you'd be surprised how many people are already out there who totally agree with you. And that's your job. Find those people. Get them working. I realized real quick that if I was going to go out there and you know, I'm going to start a political party, I'm going to go and convert people. Well, the first thing I got to do is get their agreement. Well, that could be a five-year process. And then after getting their agreement, I've got to get their support. And I learned very quickly that agreement and support don't go hand in hand. They're not necessarily the same thing. In fact, you can get support out of people who don't agree with you. You can get agreement out of people who won't support you. Classic example, we have a member in the party who's always writing his letters criticizing. I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like that. And I flip the page and it's a hundred dollars. You know, the person I'm going, well, here's a guy 
probably agrees with 60% of what we're doing, doesn't agree with the rest, but understands fundamentally that the secondary supports, and he supports it. He's actually doing something. And letting us know where he disagrees or not agree. On the other hand, I get an incredible number of people who tell me, yeah, I agree with you, I agree with, you. I agree with everything you're doing, and I couldn't get those people to give $5 a year or to deliver pamphlets or do anything like that. And that's what it takes to have a bit of action. I know why. And that's where you affect change. One of the biggest things we got, you know, politics is really boring in the sense of it's day-to-day -day activities. What we generally do around the office, 90% 90 administrative type of things, like other than writing newsletters and things like that. Um, we put out literature, for example, we printed up 100,000 of these in a batch, and we just get our volunteers going steadily door to door with a little return card. And we know that we expect one half of 1% response rate. That means for every 200 cards we deliver, we're going to get one card back. And that person goes on our mailing list. And then we work on the people that we build on that mailing list. Out of those people, we get about one out of three that finally become members. So you can see the, the kind of work. And when people see those numbers, they, they, they think it's futile. Oh, right, you're not going to work on one half of one percent. And yet I doubt that one half of one percent people in this country who are a member of any political party or anything, and they're all running the country. So it doesn't take numbers, it just takes a handful of dedicated people in the job. In fact, the fewer people you have in the actual um, operation of an organization, the better you are, the better off you are, really, in the sense of uh, keeping a cohesive direction. Another thing we had to do when we started Freedom Party was, um, and this turns off a lot of people to our party, is that we're not quite democratic in the sense people expect us to be internally. When someone joins a party, they don't get a vote. Their vote is their dollar. They don't like what we're doing, we won't get the dollar. If they like what we're doing, we get the dollar. We do vote within our executive, but initially the people in the executive are appointed by the previous members of the executive. If you don't do it that way, you cannot protect your statement of principle. Because let's face it, if anybody can just join up by giving me a, you know, 25 bucks, we get a bunch of confidence from the Green Party. And then go to our principal overnight. And that's what happened in the Liberal Party of Canada. And it's been happening in the Libertarian Party. Libertarians are obsessed with voting in democracy within the group. And I keep reminding you groups, I say, listen, democracy is for the political marketplace, not for internal organizations. They should be based on merit. People working in an organization have a position based on the work they're putting into it and the responsibilities they accept. And if, if it's not like that, it's not going to work. Well, a large organization can be more like that because a smaller group cannot get yes. over so Right. But definitely, we can write in advance. We're going to protect our statement of principles. We couldn't just leave it open to the masses, so to speak. Because what they're, the first thing they're going to do is try to alter the statement of principles not coincide with reality from our arbitrary goal that they want to get. So you have to be careful of that. And one of the advantages in the United States uh, with the large parties is that they have primaries which allows principles to be argued in the party yeah. uh, in a way that doesn't happen very much in, in Canada. You've got this party so candidate filtering system chosen uh, in, a, in a convention, but you know, really dedicated party people show up for the convention, or perhaps it's packed by, by the organization, 
with the American primary system, it allows the Republican Party, uh, a conservative and a liberal Republican to run against each other, and a, a large number of people who are adherents of the Republican Party to decide between the conservative and the liberal. So there's lots of mechanisms that can achieve the approximate same function, depending on the size of the group. Um, certainly, we're going to have more, quote, democracy within the group when we're a big party. Again, for example, let's say we had a large constituency association where we had uh, four or five people who were perfectly acceptable to us to run for the party in terms of representing. Well, that's when you vote. And you let the supporters decide. Because then it's not an issue of ideology at that point. It's an issue of who's the best man for the job or woman in the case of, you know, achieving that goal or whatever it is, getting elected or uh, whatever the task may be. So that's something that bothers people about freedom party. You know, if you can tell them, well, you don't get a vote by being a member, per se. But other than that, uh, it hasn't been a problem with our existing members. That's, that's what people will bring up as an obstacle, let's put it that way. Although I question if that's the real reason they need support. Um, there's, from with inside the, the objectivist movement, there's, there's often criticism that the political parties that try to fulfill the educational role are sort of usurping the proper division of labor between the political side of the capitalism and the education side. So it's like that, that you should be focusing issues and that uh, uh, you, you don't have a mandate to discuss you know, moral philosophy. Well, she's right. Like That's that. true. And when I say... But you do that. Hmm? But you do that. So no, well, we, we publish newsletters. For example, if you read things in consent, for example, the cover article there is for the people written very philosophically, but it's about Charlton Ford. Okay, there's another article in here um, about uh, workman's compensation. But written not from a, an issue or more for people to understand the issues, and we always follow the principle. We do not get into epistemology and ethics and things like that. You're right, that's not our task. And if I were doing that, I'd do, I would be literally doing an unnecessary task because there are other people already doing that. I'm not going to do it on your own, it's already done 10 times better. But I can take those ideas and now apply them to our political environment and the things that are on people's minds now, issue wise. And basically, do that. And then, and then, of course, Freedom Flyers is, is, is explicitly what you said. It's strictly campaign-oriented. Actually, what campaigns we're working on at a particular point in time. So, um, yes, you do have to stick to some kind of a political agenda. But you can educate on that agenda. That's what I'm saying. Like, again, maybe how I'm putting it, look, don't, don't avoid your principles. You, know? you don't have to hide them involved in issues. It's both. Don't people why you But isn't the, the when you're advocating the application of uh, free market principles to, to political issues, uh, you know, the best justification for that comes out of you know, the individualist law of philosophy that thinks that. But people aren't already in acceptance of that law that of philosophy. It seems to me like you're, you're giving uh, a lot of credit to the Canadian people for implicitly buying 
the individualism has an awful lot. And, and uh, just sort of taking advantage of that, drawing the implications out of it. So I'm just wondering how much are you counting on um, pre existing beliefs in, in individualism and Or are you uh, trying to uh, actually sort of educate them?
for the same reason, and this is something we realized very early on too, you don't have to be the party in power to have all the influence. The NDP proved that time and time again. I mean, if you can cite a liberal or conservative basic policy that hasn't been suddenly influenced by the NDP, please show it to me. The company can be the influencing party by being the party. Remember that's, that those three points and principles of being the most consistent one? You're going to win out. That's what happened with the NDP. Rand didn't say that you had to have the right principles. <laughs> he had to have the more consistent one. So if the NDP is more consistent against the Liberals and Conservatives, they're going to win. I think, if anything, the last election proved Ayn Rand's point. Okay, I, I, I agree that you may not have too late on that. No, that's winning on a philosophical level. Well, on a philosophical level, I think that the prevalent ideas are collectivist and socialist. And that's been around for a long time. It's a mix in most people. Well, I mean, that, that individual street doesn't exist in this country only because of the United States, essentially. Partly due to the British Commonwealth, too. But, uh, the underlying currents are socialism and collectivism. Continue to be. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not here saying that uh, the wave of socialism and collectivism is slowing down. Or like, I don't think it is. I believe that the best process is to philosophy. Well, politics is a branch of philosophy. Right. I agree. I'm just saying it's an overall sort of thing. I agree with what you Well, yes. Definitely, the change has to precede. Again, that's, that's, that's where I had to resolve the fact that if I wanted to be elected through a political party, I'm going to have to wait for a while. And I've acknowledged that from point A. And the issue is, I knew very well that if I wanted to be elected then and there, I could have appealed to the public based on collectivist philosophy and maybe gotten elected that way. I wasn't willing to do it, so I set these shorter-term goals, political goals, and use philosophy as my major weapon in those in achieving those goals, and it's worked. To my own surprise, as well as many other people, <laughs> but um, I've seen it. Work. Yeah, I see it. But uh, I, my concern more is around the fact that ideas in itself are hard to discuss with people because you can only do it on one. And that's why the written word is very important so a person yeah. can absorb an idea. You know, when you're talking about a concept or a whole, uh, or an abstraction in general, that requires thought. And it requires knowledge and understanding. Whereas if you're dealing just with surface superficial issues, you can deal just with perceptions. And uh, that's generally what politics is done. But you know, people are getting more and more cynical about that. They may not have discovered politics yet, but they, have, they are starting to figure out that most of what we're hearing from the politicians is about BS. And then, you know, the amount of distrust that uh, both here and in the United States people have towards the politicians is unprecedented. Um, certainly for North American history, I think. Well, that's unfortunate, too, because then you have to break the barrier of cynicism. Yes. Because if they say, right. well, you're just the same. Well, that's a, you know, the actually, Mark, you started something else I could talk about for an hour, and that's the issue of us being associated with the other political parties. The very fact that they hear that we're a political party, oh, you're part of your doctrinaire, you know, you're just going to do things out of these you know, high-in-the-sky ideas. Again, that, that cynicism towards philosophy itself, created by other groups that claim to be philosophical, produce disasters, and whenever the lesson everyone learns is, oh, philosophy equals disaster. Well, he was philosophical. Yeah, <laughs> he's philosophical about it, right. I was a little surprised, even if to go to said that uh, socialism and collectivism have not been in retreat. Uh, now, um, 
I think it's obvious in Canada that we have, you know, these NDP governments, but they got in mostly because people were voting against something, right. against the Liberals in Ontario or whatever, so the, the NDP was able to get in. But intellectually, I think even in Canada, uh, socialism has been on, you know, on the retreat. Uh, I recall in the Roman Mail a couple of years ago seeing a piece by uh, a professor I knew at Queen's University back in the late 1950s when I was a student there. And he in those days was quite a strong socialist. And in this piece in the Roman Mail, he was saying, we've now come to realize it doesn't work. Uh, and that's just one little example of the uh, uh, changing attitudes among even intellectuals to a certain extent. And uh, you know, Canada may be somewhat backward in terms of this trend and view what's happened in Britain, what happened in uh, Mexico and uh, various countries uh, around the world. Privatization trend very strong in many countries, quite apart from what's happened in the former Soviet bloc. I can't be behind the times, but I think nevertheless the trend is almost the same direction. Intellectually, intellectually, yeah, politically, and politically, uh, so the, the NDP. Uh, did not get all that high a portion of the popular vote in Ontario. I see our whole problem with people voting against things instead of for them is part of the collectivist problem. Uh, people are pitting themselves, one group against another group, that's how it all the candidate against the candidates, us versus them. And that's the whole mentality in politics. And I see that as a direct symptom of collectivism. Now, maybe on an intellectual, individual level, a lot of people are coming to realize, hey, this doesn't work. I mean, you can talk to anybody, and they'll tell you the government can't run any business efficiently. Boy, the government's still got Ontario Hydro, Canada Post, running all kinds of things. You talk to those same people, should they give up their monopoly? Oh, no way. A lot of people will be like that. Where individually, they can see that government's very inefficient, can't work, and they can see the pragmatism doesn't work in that sense. But then something, is missing. You can't explain to them why they the privatized all this. No, no, that's what the sacred cow. But even, even in the matter of uh, you know, Canadian privatization, there has been some movement in the right direction. Uh, I don't think Bob Gray, uh, for all his faults, is a great uh, uh, fan of running around nationalizing new things, provincializing no, new things. No, he couldn't afford the luxury of it right now either. Um, and of course, at the federal level, Mulroney, for all his numerous faults, uh, has at least a privatized Air Canada. Mm -hmm. So there has been some movement. Right? Yes, yeah, I'm not speaking of, you know, there's no movement at all in certain directions. I still look at the major trend. And, um, you know, even if we intellectually change our direction, we sometimes more politically and economically will constantly. Well, it takes, a, it takes a dynamic leader to make it happen rapidly. So Margaret Thatcher, England, Britain. We've never had a Margaret Thatcher here. Yeah. Socialism. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just thinking of your definition of socialism. If you look at socialism, well, that wasn't my definition. That's how I right deal with that argument. The legally, uh, legally sanctioned robbing of teachers by various levels of government to take fall, and I'm afraid each Canadian wants to be fall. Right. Or each or see themselves fall, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm glad to give up my government pension if 
Right. Well, now you're getting into an issue that's a little more deeper. You're getting more concrete with a specific example. And in that example, I would point out to people, I said, listen, you know, how old are you now? And tell them what kind of pension do they expect by the time they retire? What are you going to get out of this government? Is the dollar you're, you know, that they would pay today for when, or pay when you retire going to be worth anything to you at that time? Because it could be seriously eroded. If you want to put your future pension online, or, or you know, on the line with a government that's going 30 billion plus into the red year after year, and do you expect that government to honor its pension commitments to you? Already, for example, um, universal socialized Medicare. They're still calling it universal Medicare, but they're changing all the rules. It's not universal anymore. Matter of fact, that's that's the whole game. You know, they change the definitions for all the words. Um, right now, all the governments, all the parties are absolutely committed to universal health, but they're changing the rules. Right now, they're going to make it so that already you can see the restrictions going on people going south of the border, limits on certain expenses, no more, uh, I guess what they might call cosmetic um, type surgery. Um, it's getting to a point where for serious surgery, you have to meet certain criteria. And this is what they mean by Universal. They'll, they'll tell you, oh, it's universal. Every single person with his heart is just about ready to go. And four minutes left to live, we'll get the service. Now, is that how you want your system to be? Um, I learned this lesson firsthand with a member in my family who's not from this country, but came up to Canada for some medical um, um, you know, help here. And they had to get, uh, I forget what it's called, it's not a, it's not a CAT scan, it's another one of the brain scanner. MRI. MRI. And they came up here for one, and they were willing to pay cash, and the doctors in the hospital were just shocked seeing the cash. You know, <laughs> for this? And, uh, but they said, gee, we're sorry, uh, you can't get your MRI for X number of months. They go on waiting months, why do you have to go to the You know, here they are with the cash, and it's supposed to be an emergency at the time. Fortunately, it didn't end up being one. We didn't know that then. And uh, here's an Ontario doctor telling them, that you wanted to, to have this done this week, you should have gone to the US. Or you can pay direct and pay less than you pay here. You pay direct. Here's a waiting list. And what people have to be brought to understand is what does that waiting list have to do with socialism? There's this big gap here between the principle of socialism and this waiting list. And they don't see it. And it's not something you can just show them and say, well, because this, this, and this, you can't even make it a three-step operation. They have to understand a whole range of knowledge, a whole set of concepts. Look, what, look at the trouble Ayn Rand went to to define a single word. She wrote a book on it called Capitalism. When, she, when I opened up that book, I was shocked to read that she says, I'm not going to write this to support capitalism or push capitalism on you. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to define capitalism for you. And in the face of its definition, how can you pick anything else? That was her whole idea. And I said, wow, that's really a different approach. And it worked. But to understand capitalism, the definition of one word, I had to read a 286 page book or whatever it is. And then, the, then I understood why there was a line up here at the hospital and how it was caused by socialism. But if I hadn't read that and I didn't understand a lot of the principles that gets me from there to there, I've lost the whole connection. And I think that's a big problem that's in our whole educational system. There's so much of what's being taught in our school system is taught out of context. 
there was no specific relationship, there were no laws of causality in place. Um, it's just ridiculous some of the examples that we've gotten into. And education has been a big issue we've been involved with recently. You might know the last newsletter cover was all about the whole language issue, which is a philosophic issue you can get into for hours. This is just phenomenal. And every, every principle that you could talk about to do with objectivism has had something to do with this issue. And it's really remarkable, too. You know, you want to talk about the power of philosophy. I presented a thing on whole language at the Board of Education on uh, the subject of whole language, and I, I defined it for them. No one had a definition of whole language. That's a good way to start. And I used their own definitions against them, and they hated us. And, you know, philosophy. I said, whole language is not a method of teaching. It is a philosophy. And right away, Bill Brock, chairman of the board, picks up and tells them, we're here to discuss the concretes, not the causes. Never mind the guy right behind me got up after me to talk about the philosophy of physical education and why they need more funds there, because they were willing to spend that. You see, he was using that as an excuse to stall me, and I confronted him. I said, are you asking me to sit down? You know, and he couldn't do it. He just had to stand there and let it happen. And then I got my points across, and I pointed out why the philosophy of whole language ends up costing millions of I mean, they build complete buildings around this philosophy. I went to a school in South London there where they have this whole, what they call an open concept. And the libraries have glass walls going up three, three floors. I mean, the building is a multi-million dollar building. And we went there for a whole presentation that night on what education was all about. Never once did we hear anything about reading, writing, arithmetic. This was in an elementary school. So, um, I mean, getting the philosophy of everything, even the architecture of our educational building. But I'll tell you, when you when you hit philosophy, that's the jugular vein, hitting an issue. And you may be shocked at the response you get from some of your opponents. It's almost like insulting your mother. Uh, seriously, I'm very serious about this. And a lot of people, because of this inner conflicts that exist at the philosophic level, become very defensive. They might become very aggressive. Not physically, it's never happened, but you know what I mean in the sense of, uh, in, the, in the defensive sense, I guess, mainly. Right? Invasive. They don't want to talk about certain things. But if you can get them to talk about it, and you can force the issue on them, well, you can make incredible inroads. And, and quickly. <laughs>
I think eventually it still will take here. I, I don't altogether equate the term intellectual with university professor. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> that, is that may have said it all. There's a broader intellectual community no, on journals of opinion and, and so on, right. uh, aside from, from university professors, uh, most of whom probably are more or less intellectual, not all of them. No, but I'm just using that as an example, uh, a specific example. And I think by and large the, the general population of uh, people in general are more kind of social. I mean, uh, especially Medicare. Yeah, well, look what you're doing right now. You're calling Medicare socialism. It's not no, socialism. it's a socialist, it's a socialist program. program. And what you're really saying is a lot of people will support one or another of socialist programs to have a, a one contradiction. But that doesn't mean they accept it all. I, I can talk to people who are less a fair all the way, except on one issue, like healthcare. Healthcare is probably one of the big ones. And then second to that, I, I would probably say education. But that's because the government has been already involved in these things for so long. People already feel the pleasantness of going to the doctor and not having to pay a bill right away. That's changing again rapidly. But uh, that's what they're reacting to. And what they're really telling you they like is the benefit of being able to walk into a doctor's office and not being worried about losing their, their home and their family and everything else to making payments. And that's not an argument for socialism. And to let that argument go by and say, well, you're socialist, you've defaulted on the, on the argument. The argument is that there's not anything wrong with wanting that. This is not a, an argument of means here. This is an argument, or, or an argument of ends. It's an argument of means. Yes, it's wonderful to be able to walk into a doctor's office and not have to worry about paying a bill or worry that it's going bankrupt. Have you ever heard of the private insurance? Have we ever heard of a system, politically, even if we want to believe the government should help people, what about a system that just directs it to people who need the help? And not universally to everyone that doesn't need it. That's how you can break the ice. You don't have to see what you're doing by calling someone socialist and labeling them and saying, well, you're socialist if you believe in that. You, in a way, cut off the debate. And you've alienated the person from you because they think, well, if I want this benefit, I have to be a socialist? No, you don't. You can have that benefit. You can have anything under the face of the sun in terms of benefits if you're willing to support them in a legitimate way, in a free market way, in a responsible way, so that something's there in the future. I think so, the acceptance of that idea of It's not really the Well, the, the acceptance is as a consequence of the vacuum. Right, I mean, but essentially, if they accept that, the problem I see is that if they accept that, that's fine. They may disagree with the other things. But the thing is that when you're involved in politics, you basically buy a whole package. So they, while they may, uh, say, disagree um, with a lot of other social programs, and they may only agree with Medicare, uh, they would probably still more conservative because they tend to be bigger big the markets. Whereas you're against Medicare, so they've never voted for you. I think that's what it's trying to say is the voters will vote against. Yes, very possible. Yeah. If, they believe, if they were brought to believe that by voting for us they cannot have this benefit. But I never tell anyone they can't have that benefit. 
to whatever assumption they make on that premise drawn by their own inferences or maybe they're very blunt with by our enemies. I mean, I mean, there's some people on this campus, uh, for some professors, that are saying some nasty things about freedom parties that start through. So how do I counter complete falsehood being said? You know, people get called fascists, they believe in freedom, and so on, like often I know. That's right. Uh, so the, of your the, 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 the crucial thing, I think, about uh, defining socialism is to say that the, um, the central idea of socialism uh, is the state ownership or collective ownership, normally state ownership, of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. And that means that all modern societies have an element of socialism in that the government owns the highways, for example, which could be privately owned and operated as toll roads. And, were indeed at one time, way back in the 18th century, early roads were run as private enterprises and poles being charged, bridges too. Uh, but uh, normally, the government owns the roads and owns the post office and owns various things. And Ontario, of course, owns the liquor stores. Uh, so um, we have socialism in, in most societies to a degree. Uh, but uh, when socialism gets really dangerous is when it's carried to the point uh, where a newspaper, for example, to get advertising would have to depend on state enterprises largely. That kind of thing would have a freedom of expression restricted by fear of losing advertising from the state if it opposed the government. That's when it really gets dangerous. But, and of course it gets dangerous economically, perhaps at an earlier stage than that, efficiencies of these state enterprises. Now, when I say socialism is falling under favor intellectually, thinking of the fact that even the British Labour Party, which historically has been for nationalization, now says, you know, in terms of privatized things, we respect that. We're not going to renationalize them. They've retreated from nationalization very drastically the British Labour Party. That's just one example of uh, the intellectual retreat uh, from the idea of socialism. How do you think it's a change of principles? Well, this, the Labour Party, I believe, still has nationalization in its constitution, but uh, they make it clear that this is, you know, something that's just there for historical reasons. And they're not, uh, not going to... Just in case they have to do it. Not going to do anything. It's not part of the platform. Just to get back to your definition of socialism, again, agree that it's socialism is defined as where the government owns and controls the means of production. I think, though, that that's looking at socialism with that definition primarily an economic definition, in a sense. Whereas I was sort of more viewing socialism in a moral definition. The thing that distinguishes socialism is the use of force. And in that sense, I can separate socialism from the government, for example, owning the roads or having certain controls of things. As long as the government if it owns something, it's forced to play by the same rules as everyone else. Then the government is not socialist. But to say that, well, I, I, you know, I don't think just government ownership is, is socialism per se. Wait a minute, a private businessman has the right, if he dislikes an editorial in a newspaper, to say, I damn well wouldn't advertise in that newspaper anymore. Mm -hmm. If the government plays by the same rules and owns a lot of businesses would normally advertise, could wreck the newspaper. One businessman can't wreck the newspaper, but the government could, because it would own a lot of things if it were deeply into economic socialism. 
depends on the source of the government's funds. If it were through taxation, yes. Taxation, that's the point of the use of force. But if the government owns something, for example, you know, we're dealing with, for example, the environment. Here's how I, I'm going to use this as an example in terms of the government owning and controlling something, what I call privatization. And this was a case that we got involved with in Welland. In the city of Welland, they were dumping raw sewage into the Welland River. And our representative in, in Welland took them to the Ministry of the Environment. So they got stuff dumping stuff into the river. Now, this wouldn't have been the best means to do it, but that's the only means within the current system we have of dealing with a problem like that. What we were arguing within our group, is within our, our, within our uh, campaign, was that how to apply the principle of private property to the rivers isn't so much necessary that private individuals own the river. The government can own that river, but treat it as private property, and know exactly which government owns what. The big argument was whose responsibility is it, the provincial government or the municipal government, as the river goes through everything. And we're saying, well, we've got to make that clear. And once decided who is responsible and who owns it, then they get treated just like an individual in the marketplace. The law applies the same to the government as it should to individuals. And that way you can get around the, quote, ownership problems. I think the government is ultimately responsible for certain things, but it's not practical for individuals to be responsible for. But I wouldn't say that in and of itself is the criteria for socialism. I see socialism more on a moral base than an inline economic one, although there is economic ramifications to it. Certainly within the context of this discussion, that's how I was looking at it. You know, socialism is normally thought of as an essentially economic yes. system. I suppose the real problem is that the difference between collectivism and individualism has more clearly defined. Actually, battle uh, and I think socialism versus capitalism. You know, that's a funny thing when you can be said you think of primarily the economic system when, see again, gets back to definition. When I look at economics, if something's economic, the main thing has to be in place of voluntarism across the board for an economic transaction. If there's force in that transaction anywhere, and if it's put in there by government, I consider it political. But maybe I would say socialism is political. Well, yeah, but... Uh, Less an economic system, although it's perceived there, as there was a Soviet economy, not a very good Soviet economy, yes. there was something called the Soviet economy, that's not to say it was Soviet politics, there was a Soviet economy, which was controlled by the politicians, but uh, there was economic life of a sort. Well, yeah, forced trade is, is an economy of sorts, I guess, but not what I would want to call trade in a, plan in a moral sense. But in other words, you're saying, in effect, that you could not use the term planned economy, because if it were planned, it would not be an economy. If it were planned by government or by, by, by government force or anyone well, using force, well, yeah. any planned economy is going to be planned by a central authority, right. which would be in fact the government. Um, so it gets into the problem. The term planned economy is quite frequently used, whether one's for it or against it. And you're saying that if it's planned, it would not be an economy. Well, not in the moral sense. Not in, in, if it's not a free transaction there. I would tend to use the word political rather than economic. As soon as the government policy predetermines the consequences of it. You know, I, you know, I think a more usual definition of 
economy or economic life relates to the transfer of goods and services within the society. And uh, the, the moral element is not brought into it. The economy, relate, that term relates to the transfer of goods and services within the society. And this can be free economy or it can be a state economy, but still be an economy. Actually, closer to the audience of what we're talking about, individually compromising behaviors and the selection of preferences between alternatives rather than transition to exchanges of the next step, but the compromising behaviors of individual choice between different values according to what I see getting back even to Rand, compare capitalism and socialism, for example, Rand stated explicitly, in a capitalist society, no man or group may initiate Others. And the only function of government in such a society is the task of protecting individual rights. And then on the other on the other hand, in the socialism, in the socialist mentality, it negates private property rights and freedom of exchange entirely. To, to the degree that something is socialist, um, government forces is in place there. See, I'm, I'm trying to stick to the grand perspective looking at socialism and capitalism as a moral base rather than as an economic outcome. True, we can call anything to economy. But you, yeah, you have to use uh, force in order, of some kind of coercion, in order to maintain a socialist economy in Ontario. You want to open a liquor store, the police will cut you away. <laughs> you try to do it. It's funny, I was in a courtroom one day. Uh, it's funny how the judges often meet up punishments, but there was uh, an elderly gentleman there Yes, caught um, selling liquor on the side on Sundays, something like this. And it was really funny when the judge handed him down a sentence of some minuscule, like $50 fine. They actually commended the guy on an entrepreneur. I was sitting there in the judge's office. He was actually complimenting this guy <laughs> on being so entrepreneurial and saying that I nevertheless regret that in order to maintain the government's monopoly, nearby. Authorized to find you X dollars. That was really funny. So are we okay for that? We may have been able to talk about it. Well, thank you. Well, uh, the official proceedings adjourned. And okay. I'd like to uh, thank Bob Metz for coming out and speaking to us tonight.